snow has melted. <laughs> it is completely gone. Thank God. Running at 5 a.m. when there's snow on the ground is like the shit. It took me about five minutes longer on my run the other day because I kept I was like so nervous about slipping on the ice I was tiptoeing yeah me too (laughs) and like there was one point where like I was like coming up to this person's driveway and I was like oh my gosh there is just like three inches of ice like their whole driveway was just three inches of ice and they're just doing it they were just driving on it (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to have a lot of grace i was like okay maybe the people that like do not do anything to like their front sidewalk i was like maybe they're older like the people across the street from me are old like they can't get out and shovel right like i'm really trying to have some grace for people but there's a young couple two doors down from us that (laughs) does nothing nothing i was like are you kidding me that's so selfish (laughs) so selfish so anyways but this is more weather talk on the first episode of season 17. 17. <laughs> we are past our sweet 16s, baby. Almost legal. We're about to. We <laughs> honestly almost, almost legal. legal. <laughs> and we uh, are about to graduate from high school. The whole thing's going down. Big things. Yeah, I was 17 when I graduated. So was I. Because mm-hmm. we, we have late, late birthdays. birthdays. Fall birthdays. <laughs> If you didn't know, didn't know. <laughs> my birthday is exactly nine months and 28 days away. So <laughs> yours is eight months and know. 28 days yeah. away. <laughs> it was funny because I was um, Casey's making fun of me because I do this thing where like anytime I want to do something special, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, we should do it for this person's birthday or like for my birthday. Like I was talking about just like watching a movie with He's a couple like, of my friends. You can just do it. And I was like, yeah, we can do it for our birthday, for my birthday. And they were like, my friends are like, or we could just do it on a random Wednesday night. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, I guess, I guess we could. I guess. I guess on sure. a school night? A school night? No. no. I can't do that. Never. Yeah, it's like a big joke with me because I have to make everything. I guess I think that if not, if it's not someone's birthday, they like don't want to hang out with me. Yeah, I that's don't know. that's really upsetting. I don't know. <laughs> so but you're not here to talk about weather or birthdays. <laughs> it's her story on the rocks with Katie and Dally. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time, and we are not historians. We dibble dabble, mm-hmm. but we don't actually know the truth. No, we're very good at Googling and watching YouTube videos, which is why we all we like to say we do welcome correct answers and responses. <laughs> we Tell get, us. We welcome corrections to this show because we put this together in a week and we have full-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here to bring you still very fun stories. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, but we know that you're busy. Um, right now you're cleaning off all the fogs off of your windows because it went mm. from 30 degrees to 65 in a matter of 24 hours. And maybe you went outside to check your mailbox for more tax documents <gasps> that are supposed to be here. Come? Most of them come online now. Some yeah. of them came. Yeah. Mine in the came mail. through the email. Yeah. Uh, I haven't checked. I probably deleted them. Yeah. Because I am careless. But I'll go back and find. I'll just yeah. do a search. Yeah. It'll be okay. By the way, you're doing the same thing. So we don't want you to have to open up a new tab or get distracted. So we're going to describe these women for you in a little segment we like to call. What? Nope. Did it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. 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 We're going to describe these women for you, right? Yes. We're going to get a little... Physical, physical, 
Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing Harriet Jacobs, mm -hmm. who is an African-American woman. The photos we have of Harriet are all of her in her old age mm -hmm. um, because like she existed right when cameras started to exist. Um, she has a little bit of a crooked smile and white hair. She had very sweet eyes and was photographed sitting down on a very ornate chair in an all black long sleeved Ooh, dress. Okay. So that's what Harriet looks like. It's a real easy Google. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I am doing Big Edie and Little Edie Beale of Grey Gardens fame. So both Edith Beale, so these are a mother-daughter pair, were beautiful when they were young. They were society girls, very fashionable. They had light hair, um, fair skin, but little Edie apparently really stole the show. So she's the daughter. She was tall and thin with blonde hair, bright blue eyes. She was the talk of East Hampton in her day. But in their older years, which is when most people picture them, the two took on different yet iconic looks. Big Edie was in her late 70s with white hair and large glasses. Uh, when most people picture her, she is sitting up in a small twin bed <laughs> with a big floppy hat on. <laughs> and little Edie has become quite a style icon over the years. She could typically be seen in pantyhose or fishnet stockings with a romper style bathing suit or some other little outfit that showed off her legs. But she was good at um, oh, sorry. And then she always wore something over her head and pinned under the chin because she had alopecia and she had lost all of her hair. Ooh. So it would sometimes be a scarf, but she was also good at improvising with shirts or sweaters tied over her head. Um, and her gold brooch was always somewhere, sometimes on her headscarf, uh, sometimes on her skirt or shirt. And she always wore white pumps. <laughs> And in the winter, she wore a big fur coat. And if she had time, she drew in dark eyebrows, wore eyeliner, and red lipstick. Wow. Iconic. I, Iconic. It's wild that, like, I couldn't even really get into, like, a physical thing of their faces because there's so much about, like, what they're wearing. Like, it, it's a clothing situation. Yeah. And I don't know if you really should look up great guard like the way that they're dressed okay i'll have to google it little edie is dressed so crazy and i love it <laughs> yeah they sound like they look crazy i'm gonna have to look them up while you're yeah. making your cocktail you just do. so i can get a better visual because it, what they look like is so much of like the character of them and the thing that they're it's crazy so anyways <laughs> awesome do you want to know what you're about to drink yes i do so this is called The Incident, named mm. after uh, Harriet's autobiography. So in this drink, we have whiskey, simple syrup, lemon juice, egg white, um, and then you shake that all up, dry shake it in a cocktail shaker, and then pour it over ice in a coupe glass. And then I put a cocktail cherry, maraschino cherry in it, and sprinkled the top with cinnamon. Ooh, cheers. Cheers. Mm. I really like that one. It's like a whiskey sour, but with cinnamon. I so love the cinnamon on it. I mm. took it off of a, a Boston sour. I kind of mm -hmm. like took some of the ingredients from that because Harriet spends a lot of her time in Boston. Oh, nice. So mm. I love it. Mm -hmm. Thank God dry January is almost over. <laughs> Dry-ish January. Yeah. <laughs> I've been really doing all right. <laughs> Good. And it's it's nice too because I know producer's been away like a good bit this month too. So then you're and like 
I was thinking about how painful it must have been while it was like snowing and so beautiful. It was and so bad. Just like here and like not able to grow up with a glass of wine. And All I, was I wanted like, to do. And I was thinking a lot about you. And knowing he was in Miami like drinking his ass yes. off. It was like really fucking pissing me off. But to take you did it. Turn down my bitter <laughs> vibes and keep going. That's what I had to do. Okay. So here's where. Oh, wait. Tell me what you know about Harriet. Okay. So I did read Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl when I was in college. And I remember from the book that like she. I, I can't wait to hear the whole story because all I remember is her being stuck in that like attic space. Yeah. For, like I feel like it was like 15 years. It's a very long time. And I was just feeling so claustrophobic because I was like it, it was such a small space. She was there for so long. And it's not like she like and she was still like in the town. Like, yeah. I, I just remember. That. It just was crazy yeah, to me. It like, boggles my mind. Her story definitely boggles I my mind. I don't know how she did it. Yeah, so, I don't either. But I don't remember how old she was when she got out. So, like, I'm excited to, like, because that fact just overshadowed the entire <laughs> The book. rest of the book. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course it did. So I started with Wikipedia and a brief YouTube search and Britannica. But I found a couple really great resources. First of all... Her entire autobiography, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, is available on YouTube for free with someone reading it to you. It's seven hours worth of narrative. So it's just great. You can go on there and do that if you want to. Um, I found a YouTube video called What You Need to Know Harriet Jacobs with Karen Hunter Show, who is like a history professor african-american woman who like really gets to the roots of why she was so important Mm -hmm. um for ending slavery and for women talking about sexual abuse and slavery etc and then um another video and several sections of the book for dr jean yellen who is her original biographer Mm. who put all of her letters together and figured out the story oh okay cool so let's get started Harriet Jacobs was born in 1813 in North Carolina to a woman named Delilah Hornimblow. She was enslaved by the Hornimblow family who owned a local tavern. Due to the rule in the U.S. at the time, both she and her brother John, um, who were also who he was also enslaved at birth by the tavern family, should have not been enslaved Hmm. because they're like so they should have been enslaved because their mother was an enslaved woman but their grandmother had been freed by her white dad so like her their mother shouldn't even have been enslaved okay so there's a lot of family happening here She's growing up in this tavern. Her dad is also an enslaved man, but he has a little bit of freedom because he's a really good carpenter. Mm -hmm. So she, even though she's born into enslavement there, she's surrounded by aunts and cousins and Mm -hmm. her free grandma and her free ish dad. So she didn't initially realize that Mm -hmm. she was enslaved Mm -hmm. until she was about six years old. Um, 
Harriet's mother and grandmother used the last name of their initial slave owners, the Horn and Blows. But when Harriet and her brother John were baptized, they decided to go by the last name Jacobs because their father's father was a white man with the last name Jacobs. Okay. So they were taking the last free white person's last name or the okay. closest relative. Mm hmm. Harriet realized that she was a young enslaved girl when her mother passed away at the age of six and her father married a free black woman and kind of went off to do his own thing. So Harriet lived with her owner, um, who was the daughter of the person who owned the tavern, and she treated Harriet kind of like her little pet. She taught Harriet how to sew and how to read and how to write. Very few slaves, uh, enslaved people, were literate at the time, even though it was still legal. They hadn't mm -hmm. passed the law yet that it was illegal to teach um, your people how to read and write. But she was taught from a young age because it was this woman and her, and they just yeah. kind of had a little bit of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But when that woman died, she was 12 years old, and she was willed to that woman's three-year-old niece. <gasps> Which is kind of yucky. Yes. Like, I think emancipation was a thing. Like they right. could free their own slaves upon their death. But they didn't. She was willed to her niece, Mary Norcom. Mary's father acted as a de facto master. His name was Dr. James Norcom. John, however, did not get willed to the same family. He went to the tavern keeper's widow, but would regularly go and do stuff for the Norcom family. So he still saw his sister. However, when that widow died, him, her brother, and like a lot of her cousins and aunts are auctioned off. So she went from having this family that all worked for the tavern owners to her family being scattered being sold when Ugh. she's in her middle school aged years she's like 12 years old that's so traumatic to like be like yeah like you know we're in this bad situation but at least we're all together to then like everyone you know is either dying or being sold and sent somewhere else that's horrible it's a very crappy situation especially in those like um hormonal teenage years yeah. we often Ugh. like think like kids didn't go through that I think in the past, I, I don't know why I have that in my brain because kids are bratty now. They were also bratty back <laughs> then. Like people talk about that in uh, in books. In the book I'm reading right now about my own teenage daughters, mm -hmm. they talk about how like letters from the past bring up their kids and they didn't know how to handle them. Yeah. Because teenagers were always fucking crazy. Yeah, I know. I mean, just over the weekend, I had a middle, middle school girl hurt my feelings. <laughs> Was it Caroline? Yes, it was. Oh, my God. Because of your hair? Yeah. Oh, my God. She told me I had a Karen haircut, and I died a little bit. Inside. Oh, you don't have a Karen haircut. I, it's like, I know that. And, like, I, I was like, I think it looks good. Like, why am I letting this comment bother me so much? Yeah, middle schoolers, um, they know how to pinpoint your insecurity. Yeah. And, like, just 
dig in. I texted Paige. I was like, wow, middle school girl is still making me cry. Like, <laughs> I'm 30. <laughs> I get it every day, so I, I think I, I have armor on. <laughs> it's like the kids will be like, wow, you're breaking out a lot this week. Aren't you, like, 50? <laughs> and I'm like, fuck you. Fuck you. Like, stop saying things because you hate yourself. <laughs> yeah, middle schoolers are the worst. The worst. Uh, and they were back then, too. Yeah. I love that it's a forever thing. (laughs) (laughs) So she is going, you know, through all of this whilst Mm -hmm. she is 12. Uh, In 1828, the enslaved, the enslaved family members of hers that had been sold off try to escape, but are put in jail and then sold to New Orleans. Um, But one of them, like a cousin or something, Joseph escapes again and goes to New York and Joseph becomes like a family hero because he got out and made it to the north. For a while, the Norcoms seemed kind of cool. They even bought her brother John so he could be near them. But then Dr. Norcom soon started sexually harassing Harriet and causing his wife to become jealous. And this sexual molestation and um, the threat of it going deeper and deeper deeper was detailed in her autobiography. It's funny because like, as soon as you said that, I was like remembering yeah. that part of the story. It's just so terrible. It's why she's so desperate to get away from that family and hide. While this is happening... Harriet fell in love with a free black man who wanted to buy her freedom and marry her. But Norcom, of course, uh, enjoys getting his kicks out of her and intervened and forbade her from continuing the relationship. Mm. But then Harriet has to make a really difficult decision as a young teen, 14, 15 ish years old, hoping for protection from Dr. Norton. Harriet started a consensual, quote unquote, relationship with Samuel Sawyer. He's a white lawyer in town and a member of the North Carolina white elite. He actually ends up being in the House of Representatives. Of course. She picked someone more powerful Uh than Dr. Norcom to have a relationship with so she could get pregnant and he would leave her alone. So at least, like, this is definitely not freedom but she's kind of taking her own agency here yeah saying like at least i'm going to choose like the lesser of two evils she must have really hated norcom i didn't get a lot of detail on that i couldn't find a lot of it online and i'm sure um when i sit down to read her entire autobiography a lot more light will be shed yeah on that well and i and it sucks too because not only is she getting it from him, but then she's also like getting the wrath of the wife who's like pissed that he's showing her all this attention. Right. And it's like <laughs> clearly it is not her fault. She's like, like I don't want this. Yeah, I don't want to be involved in this at all. Yeah. And I hate that rather than like telling her husband to cut it the fuck out, like it's like well and also because like, she didn't have the power to do that. Yeah. There's no way. Like, so few people in these stories have a ton of power. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah, I, I, I think obviously Harriet is in this impossible situation. So yeah. she's like, I'm going to have sex with somebody who can keep Dr. Norcom on his toes. But like I do, you're right. I feel bad for his wife as well. Mm-hmm. She's also in her own form of cage that she can't get out of. Yeah. So she's lashing out at the only person that she has power over. Right. You know, we see it in parent situations all the time like parents are mean to the kids so the kids bully other kids because 
that's the power dynamic. Right. Who, like, how else are you going to treat people? Yeah. You have to let your anger out somewhere. Yeah. So Harriet actually ends up having three children with this soon to be congressman, lawyer man. Her kids are named Joseph, Louisa and Matilda. And for a while it worked, even though Norcom owned her, um, when they found out that she was pregnant, she was not allowed to stay in their home anymore, at least while she was, you know, in the family way. Mm-hmm. So they gave Harriet this time to live with her free grandmother. Um, but Dr. Norcom ended up continuing eventually his sexual harassment during numerous visits because her grandmother only lived like 600 feet from his house. Right. She didn't she wasn't very far away from this demon man. Mm. When she's 22 years old. Dr. Norcom moved Harriet away from her grandmother and took her to his plantation that's like six miles away. He threatened to expose her children to the hard life of plantation slavery if she wouldn't like succumb to his sexual urges. In June, Harriet decides, I'm going to escape. So he takes her there in April. She's there for like three months and she's like, I am done so she tries to run away and a white woman who was a slaveholder herself hid her at great expense to her own personal risk um and after a short time harriet was able to get to her grandmother's house Mm -hmm. where she hides in this crawl tiny tiny crawl space above like her grandmother's shed again 600 feet from her previous owner's like home Mm. This shed is like nine feet by seven feet by three feet. Um, And she hid in this crawl space for seven years. That's insane. Seven years in pretty much something smaller than a coffin. Yeah, because you can look at pictures of it. Because like I remember one of the things is like she could never she couldn't stand up. Yeah. So she was just like laying down for seven years. Yeah. And like getting muscle atrophy problems and things of that nature. Um, And that was a big, big health problem for her. Her body dealt with a lot of pain and like muscle loss for the remainder of her life. Mm. Um, I'm sure a lot of muscles were never able to regrow to the size that they were supposed to be. Um, And through all these years, I'm thinking like, why not just escape? Why not walk away? Why stay in this box? But Norcom is obsessed with her and we're going to see that throughout this story he will not let it go that she has escaped from him psycho he's a real psycho I think it's I mean that is true like masculine energy there that you feel slighted so you're not going to stop until you get this person back Um, Harriet ended up like boring a series of holes in the wall that are only about an inch so that she can let some light in enough that she could sew and read the Bible. And she would write letters to Norcom pretending that she was in New York. So he thought that she had escaped to New York in all this time, which actually was a problem later on with her autobiography because people thought it was a fiction because they thought she was in New York because a lot of her letters said that she was. Okay. So that all had to be straightened out because she wrote other letters at that time, too, that had the truth in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But they just couldn't put that together until the 1980s. (laughs) Like we had a long time of thinking this Mm. was just a fictional book. Um, Also, sometimes Harriet could see her kids Mm. like through the holes, like and her her own grandmother, like raising her kids. So that's super sad. Oh, my gosh. So. 
Dr. Norcom, of course, reacted by selling Harriet's children and her brother into the slave trade and demanded that they should be in a different state to punish her for escaping to, quote unquote, New York. But the traders were in this secret league with Sawyer, the soon to be congressman, mm-hmm. Harriet's white lawyer lover. Um, so they were all sold to him. So now he owns his three children and Harriet's brother. Sawyer said that he would legally free the children, um, but he he didn't end up keeping that promise, but did allow the kids to live with their grandmother. So, like, okay. he didn't take care of them. But, of course, that's just, like, no skin off his back. He's like, yeah, I right. own you, but your grandma can pay for you and raise you. And <laughs> I'm not going to contribute whatsoever. Yeah, that's exactly people who put their kids <sighs> on the school bus in the morning. Yeah. And then they're like, no, we didn't check their grades until the last day before report cards. Right. It's like, thanks for that. Thanks for helping with raising your child. <sighs> After Sawyer got married, um... Harriet asked her grandmother, like, hey, he's married now. Can you, like, remind him of his promise that he was going to free our children? So he sends one of their daughters, to Louisa, to live in New York with his cousin. And in Brooklyn, like, abolished slave had already abolished Mm -hmm. slavery. So Louisa is now, for all intents and purposes, free. Mm -hmm. He also suggested sending the son, Joseph, to a free state. Um... There's a lot of shifting around of her family. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it's 1842, and Harriet finally gets the chance to escape by boat to Philadelphia. She, like, dresses up like a sailor. I think Norcom might be, like, out of town. Mm-hmm. She goes and gets on this boat, makes it to Philly. In Philly, gets in cahoots with the slavery committee there. They send her to New York after a short stay in New York. Although she has no references or technical experience, a woman named Mary Willis, who is the famous, um, who's the wife of a famous author, hires Harriet as their nanny to watch their baby. And she's like, okay, this is going to be like a one week agreement. I'll pay you for the week. And if you do a good job, you can stay. And if you don't like no, no skin off our backs, mm-hmm. like you'll just go on and find more work. Their families actually end up being friends for decades. Aww. Literally their two daughters. Um, one of them dies in the other one's house, like generations later, oh like, cause gosh. they're just like hanging out. Not a vindictive death, an old age death. <laughs> <laughs> And um, it's 1843. She's working in New York for this family. And she hears that Dr. Norcom is going to come to New York to try to force her back to slavery. Why won't he just die? She was in a crawl space for seven years and then in Philly slash New York for a year. She's been gone for eight years. And you're going to come to New York to find her. She's like 30 years old. Oh, my gosh. What is his problem? I don't know. So many things. He's so upset about this. So she's like, Mary, the woman she works for, Mary Willis, can I please take two weeks and go to Boston? I'm going to visit my brother who happens to be there at this time um, because he had gone on a trip with one of his owners to New York and then kind of like escaped and took his own freedom um, while they were out whaling. So he's been there and she's like, I'm going to go visit my brother. And Mary's like, sure, like whatever keeps you safe from this crazy doctor boy. So Harriet, when she's in Boston, writes to her grandmother, who is somehow still alive, and is like, send Joseph up here to live with my brother, John. So Joseph comes up, and now Louisa is living in New York, and Joseph is living in Boston, and she's kind of in between. 
Um, the abolition movement is so strong, so, so strong in Boston um, that she also decides she's going to bring Louisa out of New York, who was working for the Sawyer's cousin and kind of being treated like an enslaved person, even though she was like an indentured servant. Mm-hmm. So all that's happening. We're <laughs> tracking the whole family up yeah. the East Coast. They're slowly making the way up. But then Mary Willis, the woman who had taken her in in New York, passes away. And her husband, Nathaniel, the famous author, is like, well, I mean, I'm going to take my daughter to England to visit the in-laws. So, like, if you want to come and watch the baby while we go, like, are you into that? And she's like, sure. So she goes to England with this man and gains a really new perspective on the world. Britain was the... The inequality. They still say that today. Like a lot of um, people of color, when they travel abroad, there's not the same sense of racism that you find in America. That's like our biggest thing. There's more of like an emphasis on um, economic Mm -hmm. uh, differentiation than Mm -hmm. there is racial. So she like finds this like whole new like perspective on race while she's over there. Imagine living in a crawl space for seven years and then getting to like go to a different country. No. Like I'm sure that just never crossed her mind like that that would be a possibility. And here she is. Yeah. She was just laying down for five years. Do you ever think she was tired and like, man, I wish I was back in that crawl space. (laughs) (laughs) I bet not. But could you imagine? God. I mean, and you don't even have like a cell phone to like decline. I know. I I know. Like any like. And I'm, so, and I'm I hope she had more than just the Bible. To her. I'm hope, sure her grandmother was... was giving her books. She was obviously giving her food and stuff. So I'm yeah. sure they were switching things in and out of that crawl space. I really hope she had to come out and stretch her legs a little bit. Yeah. Oh. At night, like God. get down and do some jumping jacks. You've got to. got to. There has to be something going on. You yeah. can't just you would die. Yeah. You would die. Your body would stop circulating. You would get bed sores. You know what yeah, I mean? Definitely. Like mm-hmm. she's got to be up and doing something. Mm-hmm. So I know I've mentioned it a couple times, and Katie mentioned it too. You might wonder how we know all this really detailed information about Harriet's life. And it's because she wrote an autobiography, a very amazing autobiography, telling us about the long and arduous process of slavery and the traumatic sexual abuse um, and abuse of motherhood when you are a woman enslaved in this country. And I want to Tell us how she did that, because there's a long journey of not just her life, but then also telling her story. At this point, she's gone to England. She's come home. Her brother, Jacob, had gotten involved in the anti-slavery movement in Boston. He's in cahoots with William Lloyd Garrison. So like big name people. Mm -hmm. Her brother took responsibility for the anti-slavery office and reading room. And Harriet supported him and visited often. Harriet, who is a previous um, enslaved person, had had no formal education. And she now found herself in circles of people who were about to change America for the better. The reading room her brother ran was in the same building as the North Star newspaper, which was run by none other than Frederick Douglass. Uh, wow. <laughs> so you're really with somebody yeah. now. The, <laughs> I mean, arguably the most influential black man in that entire century. Oh, yeah. Easily, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Harriet is also now living in a house with Amy and Isaac Post, who are huge enemies of slavery and were at the Seneca Falls Convention and signed the Declaration of Sentiment. Mm. So she's surrounded by some activist people. So 
Harriet then is like, okay, I'm with all these people I'm learning, but I don't really want to be involved in the movement. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I'm going to go visit the Willis family and this little girl I nannied for all those years who's eight years old. So she goes back. She knows it's dangerous to be in New York. Um, it wasn't as liberal as Boston. But they're like, look, I have a new wife. Nathaniel's like, I have a new wife. Can you help with the baby, her new baby, this baby? Um, but the problem is the fugitive slave laws had gotten more serious now it's not just like oh if we come up and find you now it's like we give rewards to people yeah. mm -hmm. who send you back and if we know that they knew you were here and they'll be punished too yeah so there's a lot more going on so it's very dangerous for her to be there um but she had this time away from her kids who are now kind of scattered to reflect on how difficult it was to be a woman enslaved because you are a mother who's constantly getting your heart broken. Yeah. And the same way that we talk about how teenagers haven't changed, this wasn't any easier just because it was 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like I, we talk about that a lot too with infant mortality. Like just because more babies died doesn't mean it wasn't just as traumatic yeah. every single time. Mm -hmm. So um, then <laughs> Norcom is coming up to New York again to try to find her. He's coming back, Katie, to this family. And the Willis family, like Nathaniel Willis and his new wife, like instead of doing nothing, they they react. They're like not going to be passive. Uh, they really do not want the family because here's the thing. It's not Dr. Norcom coming anymore. It's his daughter. And her new husband. What? This is like how Jaws tracks down a family in all the movies. They're like, we own you. We They must have run out of money or something. And like, this is all they had. We're like, the or they're just bitter, bitter people. I don't understand why his daughter would also. They're from North why Carolina. Why do they care? Just I, stay in North Carolina. Go away. I just, a part of me is like, is it just the, like the audacity of like, I deserve this. Like that's mine. Like, I think it is. It. I think like, it is. Is it just as simple as that? Because it has to be there. <laughs> enslaved people were treated like family heirlooms. Honestly, they were right, handed down. About, like if this was like, you know. All right. Let's think of Harriet as like the heart of the ocean. Right. You know, and if you knew that the heart of the ocean belonged to your family and was it's in, in New, New York, York. You'd go you know, get it. You'd go get it. I guess. Except it's people. <laughs> Except it's a person. It's not a piece of jewelry. It's not it's an like item. They're treating it. They're treating her like an item. Yes. And like this thing that like, I don't know. Because it's also like, what use is she to you now? No. She is an older woman. Like, it's baffling. What it is do you want from her? Baffling to me. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're treating it as if she's like a piece of jewelry that somebody stole. I yeah. like you. It's terrible. It's like, well, I guess she stole herself because <laughs> she ran away. Yeah. God, I crazy. But okay. fortunately, like this is where the journey with that family is going to end because the Willis family is like, you know what? We're just going to cough up 300 bucks and buy her. So the Willis family, who has like been treating her so well for all these years and in her autobiography, Harriet described having mixed feelings about this. She was mm. like, I felt super bitter that you could buy a human in the free city of New York and nobody did anything about it. But I'm also super grateful yeah. that they were willing to cough up $300 to get this fucking family to leave me alone. Yeah. So it was, I think she just, 
I think that's a great way to describe it. Like yeah. she was both bitter and happy at the same time because well, she's still an owned woman now. Yeah. And I'd be bitter. It's like, okay, so they still get rewarded for this behavior. They get rewarded right. for being terrible, terrible people. Yeah, they're getting three hundred dollars. Which is a lot. A lot of, money, a lot of money in the 1800s. Then, you know? Yes. Like it's so I'm sure that was also part of it of like they're still ending up with some kind of like reward for yeah. this awful behavior. Ugh. <sighs> so, I mean, in all of this, Harriet is now like living with the posts and she said they're the first people who really treated her like an equal. Like she mm-hmm. had been with other white families, but this white family made her feel like kind of like the British people did. Um, and then Harriet felt comfortable telling her story to them. And Amy Post suggests that Harriet write her life story, which is something her brother had been saying she should do for a long time. And Harriet also kind of felt this moral obligation to tell her story because so many things that happened to a lot of people had happened to her. Um, But she knew she would have to act against the common writing at the time because she would have to overcome talking about things like sex and slavery and motherhood and escape in a book coming out in the mid 1800s. So Harriet's first step was to write an outline and she gave it to Amy Post and Amy Post was told to send it to Harriet Beecher Stowe. And the original goal was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had just put out Uncle Tom's Cabin, which we haven't done her, have we? It's so upsetting because after this, I definitely do because I'm kind of pissed at her throughout this story. Uh, I feel like she ends up being kind of a problematic person. She's a super problematic person. Like even Uncle Tom's Cabin is problematic. I always thought that that book was written by a black woman. I know it was absolutely not. No, it wasn't. Um. We and I think that's why we keep avoiding putting her on this. There's like so it's like you have to you really have to tiptoe around it because she like did some great things, but is so problematic that it's disgusting. Well, and this As is with so many of like the white savior. Women oh, of the time, oh, absolutely. Which we've covered plenty oh, of them. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. OK, so um, Harriet, before Harriet Beecher Stowe can respond to this, um, Harriet Jacobs finds out that she's go- like Harriet Stowe is going to London. I'm just going to call her Stowe. Okay. Harriet is our girl. Stowe yeah. is Beecher Stowe. So. She's going to London. So instead, Harriet's like, oh, just take my daughter Louisa with you to London. And while you're like talking about Uncle Tom's cabin, Louisa can tell my story of being enslaved. And um, Stowe is like, no, Louisa will get spoiled by all the sympathy that she gets in England for this story. Uh, And Harriet's like, okay. And as a consequence to that, she's like, I'm not letting this fucking woman write my story. That's crazy. (laughs) So then Harriet is like trying to figure out what to do. She's got the outline. She's writing here and there, but then she gets a hold of a newspaper one night and Julia Tyler, the wife of former president James Tyler had wrote a defense of slavery for the newspaper called the women of England versus the women of America. And in it, she said that, you know, the women of England don't understand because the slaves in America are well clothed and happy. Unlike the way that, you know, they treated slaves over the pond. So Harriet stays up all night writing a letter in response to this, to the New York Tribune and signs it a fugitive slave. It gets published on June 21st and becomes her first published printed work. Her biographer, Dr. Jean Yellen, who I referenced earlier, says that uh, when that letter was written, an author was born. Yeah. 
So Harriet decided that she was going to author her own story, story, and even better, I mean, it's sad for her family, but her grandmother passed away, and this gave Harriet some freedom. She felt like she could write truly and honestly about her sexual history without disappointing her grandmother. Mm -hmm. So she starts to really write hardcore. Um, So, you know, the Willis dad, Nathaniel, the famous author, um, Harriet keeps going to like help with his kids. And at one point he's like, Hey, I've got to go out to my countryside estate where I write. Can you come and watch my kids while I'm writing there? I'm the famous author. And then she goes there and also becomes a famous author writing. (laughs) So they're like both writing and she's like also full-time watching his kids. So that's kind of cool that it's like a writing house for both of them. And then her daughter, Louisa takes her mom's manuscript and copies it by hand, standardizing all of the language and the punctuation. Mm. So like if we're using an Oxford comma, we're using an Oxford comma Mm -hmm. all the way through. Um, Just making sure that the style and content are consistent all the way across the book. She writes to Amy Post then and asks for a forward letter for the book, but some shame is still present. She said, and I quote in this letter, as much pleasure as it would afford me and as great an honor as I would deem it to have your name associated with my book. Yet believe me, dear friend, there are many painful things in it that make me shrink from asking the sacrifice from one so good and pure as yourself. She just feels like the book is shining a light on all of her faults when they're not her faults. You know, it's interesting. I I read this for like one of my, you know, gender studies classes and we were talking about how this was all she could stomach to write. So she probably left a lot of like the really brutal stuff out. Oh yes. Like it's just like, you know, you know that in your gut that like this was all she could bear to put down on paper anytime i read a memoir like that that's what i think of Mm -hmm. like this is what you could physically get out yeah and that's okay yeah so you know harriet then sails to england to try to get a publisher for this book Mm -hmm. because that's her best chance Mm -hmm. she took letters of introduction about herself and letters from other people many suspect though that because the man that she had these three children with is a fucking u.s congressman like people are like i really don't want to publish this book and like Mm -hmm. rubble feathers so then of course (laughs) john brown and harper's ferry happens this is in everybody's story (laughs) thank you maryland so the harper's ferry thing happens and and harriet's like okay i'm gonna use this to my advantage let me just add a chapter about john brown in the back of my book um and then i can ship it out again and publishers are like oh this is cool now it's in vogue you can either We'll publish your book if you get Harriet Beecher Stowe to do a forward or Nathaniel Parker Willis. And she's like, I don't want to ask the Willis family. They've done so much for me. They bought me. They own me. That's weird. Yeah. He's my male employer, the original woman. He's married to a new woman now. Like, I don't know. So she layers. Lots of layers. So she asks Harriet Beecher Stowe, who declines, says she's not going to write a forward for the book. So now... A second time, she can't get it published. My God, Harriet Stowe, what is wrong with you? It's so upsetting to me. So Harriet then contacts another publisher. She's like, this is my last shot. They had just published a biography of John Brown. So they're like, all right, we will publish your book if you get a preface by Lydia Marie Child, who's another famous author. Harriet 
feels really downtrodden. She does not want to ask another famous white person for a favor. Um, but she goes, okay, last effort. So Harriet goes to Lydia in Boston and she not only agrees to write a preface, but also says she will be the official editor of the book. Wow. Child rearranges the material to make it make more sense in chronological order. She drops the final chapter altogether about John Brown. She asks her to add more information about anti-black violence in North Carolina. And the two women keep in contact via mail during the entire editing process. So this woman is like helping her polish the book professionally. That's so nice to hear. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) And it's also not... I like that she was like, no, get more into the detail rather than being like, mm, doesn't this... come off very good that you're talking so poorly about your former employer or right. former owner. Yeah. You know, it's like because she could have gone that way and be like, yeah. it's a little too harsh. You know, can you like soften it up? Yeah, a bit? tone it down a little. But instead she was like, oh, like because she knew there was more. She's like, lean story. into it. Lean yeah. in, girl. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm Great. glad she had her. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So after the book was stereotyped, which is making the plate to like put the thing on. I didn't know that's what stereotyped means. I didn't know either. It's like once it's set so you can like run the ink over the page. So when you stereotype someone. Oh my god! It was a blue word on Wikipedia and I was like, let me hover. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) I'm not going to click, but I'm absolutely going to hover. That's so fascinating. Yeah, stereotyped. I get it now. Yeah, you're a stereotype. You're... Already set, set Already in stone. Set. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Everybody, there's, you learned something new. There's your cocktail party fact. <laughs> if it wasn't about Harriet, yeah. it was about stereotyping. <laughs> okay. So after the book is stereotyped, um, Harriet bought the plates with oh. her own money so that she could print and bind this book. Four years after finishing the manuscript on the, you know, like at the beginning of the Civil War, Harriet's book finally appears to the public Mm. called The Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Her brother also published a much shorter memoir called A True Tale of Slavery. In her book, Harriet does not mention the state or even the town in which she was enslaved. And she changed all the personal names, which is another reason it was so hard to track down whether or not this was a real story. And she even goes by a pseudonym. The author's name is not given on the title page, but there is a foreword signed by the author, author, but the name is Linda Brent in the book. The book is promoted by abolitionists and well-received by critics. It was also published in Great Britain and even has some pirated editions because it was very, very famous. The publication... Didn't cause contempt, though, as Harriet had feared. On the contrary, she gained so much respect because even though she used a pseudonym in abolitionist circles, she was regularly introduced as Miss Jacobs, the author Linda. The Daily News in London called her a true heroine, saying that she endured so much in the struggle for liberty. Mm -hmm. But then things are about to change. Lincoln was president, you know, He hadn't freed slaves in the South yet, but many had escaped North. And there's all these camps of slaves that had escaped North, but have nowhere to go. Uh, And they're called contraband camps. I had never heard of these Mm -mm. because the the humans in them were all contraband. They were like slaves that escaped North and are hiding out during the Civil War and living in camps like refugees. I didn't. Yeah, I've never heard of this before. I had never heard of that. So Harriet, while she's famous Mm -hmm. for this book, 
is like, I'm going to go to these camps and start helping these people. Mm. So she goes and she starts like going around and collecting money to bring blankets and things to these camps. And she's going around the North. Like we have to save these people who are yeah. just living out in the cold. And who answers the call? The Quakers. Oh, the Quakers of are like, course. we'll absolutely help you get clothes and distribute blankets in all of these camps. So she's like running around during the civil war in Virginia. She's not up really far North. She's in dangerous territory to mm. be sent home um, or be like not home to be re fucking enslaved and captured mm -hmm. um she's also going to all these meetings and the parade for the new uh 54th massachusetts infantry regiment but once alexandria had been taken by the north harriet is like oh my gosh none of these enslaved people know how to read what if i like open a school in virginia so she and her daughter louisa who was trained in education uh -huh. open a school and then these white missionaries try to buy it from her, take it from her. And she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. You guys have all your own schools. And yeah. I opened a free school. And this school is going to be owned by black people because we don't want these children coming out of slavery. And the first person they see in a position of power is yeah. another white person. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the last thing we need. So yeah. her and her daughter were like fucking wow. running new public schools. That's so cool. I know. So she's also being coming involved in like the women's loyal national league that Susan B. Anthony has collected. So she's connected with a lot of really famous people. She is fighting for emancipation for black soldiers in hospitals. Um, Frederick Douglass stops by to be like, what's up? Amy post comes by and she writes her a letters like this is the happiest six months of my life convinced this model is sustainable and going to work. She's like, you know what would be a great idea if I go to Savannah, Georgia to open up a school. Probably not a good idea. Yeah. Let's not keep going <laughs> farther south. Like Virginia, fine. But now you're skipping both Carolinas and going to Georgia? Yeah. That's bonkers. Especially because President Lincoln was assassinated. And his successor, Andrew Johnson, was a former slaveholder. And, like, he's removing all free black men and women from the South. And Harriet and Louisa are like, we've got to leave Georgia or, like, we're going to be re-enslaved. So she moves around the country for two years, raising funds, trying to get this school off the ground in Georgia. But it turns out being impossible because of the surgeons of the KKK yeah. so she takes the money that she raised for this school and gives it to the Quakers for their asylum fund in New York mm. John and Joseph her brother and son went to California to look for gold and the two ended up traveling to Australia John then goes to England and Joseph stays in Australia but after some time of being there no more letters get sent to Harriet and she tries to track him down but she never hears from her son ever oh, again that's so sad. later in life Harriet retired to private life in Cambridge Massachusetts she kept a boarding house with Louisa I never know what happened to Matilda this other daughter yeah <laughs> it's a lot about Joseph and Louisa she either died young or was sold away and couldn't yeah. be found you know um or maybe I just missed something entirely yeah. <laughs> which is also possible um a lot of the people staying at this boarding house were faculty members at Harvard because she's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
then her brother dies, which is so sad because they had been through all of this together. So Harriet and Louisa decide to move to Washington, D.C., where Louisa hoped to get a job as a teacher. She had short periods of work, but they end up having to open a boarding house in D.C. as well because Louisa can't get a steady job. But eventually Harriet becomes too sick to be able to run a boarding house. So they take odd jobs around town until her death on March 7th, 1897. She had almost made it to the 1900s. Mm. Um, She is buried in Cambridge in Mount Auburn Cemetery next to her brother. Her tombstone says patient in tribulation, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So prior to Dr. Jean Yellen's research in the 1980s, the accepted opinion was that this book was fiction by Lydia Maria Child, who was the editor. But Yellen did extensive research and read all of these letters that Harriet wrote and started to realize that she was in two different places. Mm -hmm. She was in New York. She was in North Carolina. What towns is she from? And then she started looking up records as she found last names. She was like, okay, I found the last name Jacobs, but her mother's last name is not Jacobs. It's something else. And her father's last name is Knox. So because of that, she could find the slave owners' families because Mm -hmm. most of them were named after their owners. And Mm -hmm. she really put the puzzle together for us Mm. and is the first person in 1987 to come out with an addition to this where the pseudonyms are removed. We know now who Dr. Norcom is. Mm -hmm. We know that Congressman Sawyer Mm -hmm. is the one who fathered Mm -hmm. her three children. Um, And in 2004, Yellen published another uh, biography instead of republishing her autobiography that's almost 400 pages and then uh, a couple years later she publishes all 900 documents that she wrote her letters her newspaper articles things from her autobiography that didn't make it in um and really today harriet is seen as an icon of female resistance Mm. especially because she didn't only promote the end of slavery throughout the north and throughout the south but she was a champion for armed forces for men in hospitals for people in refugee camps for Mm -hmm. children at school but mostly for openly and honestly being one of the first women in our country to talk about the sexual exploits of slavery and the physical violence that women um were willing to undertake on Mm -hmm. their bodies like Harriet was willing to get pregnant three times by this other man just to avoid this one man Like, it's a very sad and terrible story. And I was listening to um, one of an African-American history professor online talk about this. And she was saying how this is like the earliest form of the Me Too movement. This was so forward for the 1800s. So, I mean, she just revealed the way that racism and misogyny intersected with the experience of an enslaved woman different than an enslaved man. Mm -hmm. And she was the first person to do that and just change the world with her book. Incredible. That's Harriet's story. What an incredible story. And like, there's so much more to it than like the brief little bit that I remember. Yeah. You know, which I think it's, it's why it's important to like revisit people, even if like you remember just like a tidbit of their story. And like, yes, I read that once, but like, to get the full thing and it's like all I remember is the crawl space and then she had this whole big life afterwards yeah you know 
Like, that's incredible. It is. I think, too, like, I mean, there are people I researched in, like, for this podcast in, like, 2019 Mm -hmm. that I revisit. Yeah. Because if you visit people at different ages, you learn different things. You can read the same book twice and be like, oh, I got something different out of it now. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, this woman, you know, writing a memoir about sexual trauma obviously, like, really hits home for me. So it was a Mm -hmm. very, very cool story yeah to research and like i'm so proud of her like i'm proud of her for just getting it on paper Mm -hmm. and she couldn't even type man she had to do it by hand like a crazy person right all slow and stuff nuts no way (laughs) (laughs) all right perfect well thank you and we're gonna get another drink and talk about some very different women i can't wait we're starting (laughs) the season seriously with a a bang bang, because we're almost legal yes We're back. Part two. Another cocktail. A petite yellow number. It's so <laughs> cute. I love the sugar on the little lemon. Thank you. You know, what's funny is I was going to go for a gray cocktail, but I feel like whenever I really try to make a colored cocktail, it's it's difficult. It always looks not- good online. Thanks. But I, I just like, I was like, I should just put something gray in it. So it has Earl Grey tea simple syrup Perfect. but you know anyways that's just so, the way so yes so this cocktail is obviously t- called gray gardens so it is vodka liqueur 43 earl gray simple syrup orange bitters lemon juice with served with a sugared lemon slice <laughs> cheers cheers throw this little number in there mm-hmm. very good mm. We mm-hmm. hit it out of the park tonight, I think. They two good cocktails. Yeah, yeah, I like this. I think last week our cocktails were nice looking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I even actually, I liked how bitter yours was with the meringue. It like balance. <laughs> I felt like it was like the sweet and like the, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like it blended well together. Mine was so fruit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very fruit. So but fruit. I think the Aperol in yours was such an interesting mm. twist. Um, but yeah, who knows? Two good, nice cocktails this week. But it's not last week. We're talking about this week. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about these women, Katie. Okay. I, I like, like I said last week, I feel like I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Except for Harry Beecher Stowe. I'm all yeah. checked out <laughs> with women in the world. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I, my sources this week were the Grey Gardens website. Um, Wikipedia, and I obviously watched the famous documentary where these women became famous, which is called Grey Gardens. <laughs> I don't understand this, and especially being someone who loves changing houses. Yeah. I don't know what they did. <laughs> what did they do? Let's get into it. Okay. So, Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale was born on October 5th, 1895. So, this is the mother. We're going to start with her. Her parents were Maud Francis Sargent and John Werner Bouvier Jr. And they were the paternal grandparents of Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis. I was going to (laughs) say, listen to me. Bouvier is a name that I know via Marge Simpson and Jacqueline Kennedy. (laughs) So, yes, Big Edie is Jackie's aunt and Little Edie is her cousin. So... Edith. So I'm going to kind of go back and like, so because they're both named Edith, and I don't want to 
constantly say Big Edie and Little Edie. Um, I'm going to mainly refer to Big Edie as Edith and Little Edie as Edie. <laughs> um, so Edith's father was an American Wall Street lawyer and stockbroker. So the family grew up with lots of money in Nutley, New Jersey. So wait, is the father the brother to the Kennedy? No, they no, marry no, no. into the Kennedys. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, okay. so they marry into the Kennedys eventually. Um, so we don't know too much about her early life, but we know it was one of wealth and privilege. And we also know that she was a handful. She was labeled a difficult child, often mischievous, unruly, and disrespectful of authority attributed to her French genes. (laughs) And by the age of 10, Edith was already known for her artistic talent and was considered to be somewhat of a singer pianist prodigy. And when she got a bit older, a bit older, she moved to New York and made quite a splash on the social scene. Edith was engaged to Horace R. Bigelow Allen. However, they broke off their engagement in 1916. Horace immediately joined the Red Cross and left for France to drive ambulances during World War I. And there he married another socialite named Kiki Gwynn, which I really only included the fact because I love her name. What? <laughs> Kiki That's Gwynn. That's why he what? married her. <laughs> the only reason is that cute name. So didn't marry Horace. <gasps> and... Kiki's ambulance delivery service. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So Edith continued partying and having a good time while also pursuing a career as a singer. Um, And then in 1917, she married lawyer slash financier Phelan Beale, who worked at her father's law firm, Bouvier and Beale. He was 14 years older than her, but I think that her dad was hoping that this change would kind of calm his wild daughter down a little bit. (laughs) So... It was an extremely lavish New York wedding that hosted hundreds of elite socialites and took place at the iconic St. Patrick's Cathedral <gasps> in the middle of Manhattan. Shut you know the one. Up. Yeah. Damn. And one of Edith's demands for the wedding was a huge choir and a soprano soloist. Of <laughs> course, she later admitted that she would have loved to have sung it herself <laughs> had she not been at the altar. <laughs> I am. I go to so many weddings, and I just want a bride to step up in the cathedral, please. In the, in a cathedral, take the mic from from the pulpit and, and just, just belt it out, rip it. Oh, <laughs> That's I all I want. <laughs> like Mark with a saxophone at your wedding, <laughs> please, please, blue vest and all, blue vest and all. <laughs> so. The couple lived at 987 Madison Avenue, now the site of the Carlisle Hotel. They had three children, Edith, a.k.a. Little Edie, born in 1917, Phelan Jr., born in 1920, and Bouvier in 1922. They were not super creative with the names. (laughs) I also love the idea of a man named Bouvier out there. Boovy. Yeah. Hey, Boov. Hey, Boov. (laughs) Boov. Bring it back, guys. The next boy's name to hit the the stands. I think, think, like, when you are from family money, you, like, attempt to name your kids recognizable names. Is that true? Is that why they keep repeating over and over? I guess so. I feel like it's a weird sense of, like, legacy and tradition. and (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) So... Obviously, this is where Little Edie's story starts, (laughs) living a life of luxury in New York within the confines of a prominent family, just like her mother did. I forgot. Is she the oldest, middle, or youngest? She's the oldest. Okay, So she's the oldest child. Um, Yeah. 
two younger brothers. And in 1923, Big Edie wanted a place for the family to summer in the Hamptons. So, so she and Phelan purchased a beautiful country estate right off the beach called Grey Gardens. And it was here in Grey Gardens that Edith really came into herself. <laughs> her daily routine included playing the piano, socializing with artists, and training her operatic mezzo-soprano voice. So she could sing at her second wedding. Mm -hmm. She offered up her singing services to the locals and would often sing at parties in small venues around town. She also started dressing in a very unconventional way. They didn't give specifics. They just said bohemian, which was not particularly well received by the Hampton elite. Either way, Edith was getting a little weirder, and her husband was not feeling it. So he left her in 1931, I believe, for a younger woman. Were the the people were dressed in very tailored in the yes. 30s? Yeah, yeah, okay. very tailored. And I think she oh, was like in Coco like, Chanel buttons, yes. very boxy tailored. Okay. And I think she was just in like flowing like dresses, like you know big floppy hats like that's what it kind of seemed like I couldn't get any details on what the fuck she was wearing <laughs> like good good but <clears throat> anyways over the years she continued to pursue her singing career giving recitals in her home <laughs> can you imagine coming to my house I'm gonna sing for you I would never a go to a dinner party. It's recital. like I would love to go to dinner parties like that I wish people planned dinner parties with events yeah I want an event that would be ideal don't um, make me sing. <laughs> don't make me sing. <laughs> She's definitely that person. 100%. Um, so, and she would also, you know, lend her voice to local functions. Her sons went to college in World War II um, and had families of their own. But it wasn't until 1946 that Edith and her husband officially got divorced, uh, which Phelan did via telegram from Mexico. Little Edie <laughs> later referred to her, referred to it as, a fake Mexican divorce Whoa! <laughs> because it was not recognized by the Catholic Church according <laughs> to her. <laughs> Are any divorces recognized by the Catholic I Church? Don't think so. Edith received child support but no form of alimony, uh, but she did get to keep Grey Gardens as part of the settlement and found the imposing home difficult to maintain on her own financially. Unable to support herself, her father would have to contribute upwards of $3,500 a year to assist her. But that relationship suddenly changed in 1942 after the wedding of her son, Bouvier. Edith arrived 25 minutes late and dressed like an opera star. Her father was furious. Edith always liked to steal the show or be the center of attention, but he drew the line at his grandson's wedding. So he changed his will two days later. Her inherited share of his $825,000 estate was now reduced to $65,000 and as a further insult would be controlled in trust entirely by her sons. So we will live, we'll, we'll leave Big Edie for now and catch up with Little Edie. Wowza. So the whole time all this is playing out with her mother, Little Edie is growing up the same way her mother did. She was absolutely a part of high society. She attended the Spence School, a, pri a private school for the wealthy located in New York until her mother mysteriously took her out. She claimed it was for respiratory illness, but I think she just was lonely and wanted to hang out with Edie um, because they were rarely seen apart and were seen attending plays and movies out about town every single day. Talk about traumatizing your child by taking yes. away their education. Yeah. 
1935, she graduated from Miss Porter's School, a highly selective finishing school for ladies located in Farmington, Connecticut. So she did go back to school. <laughs> um, she had her debutante debut at the Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue, New York. Uh, sorry, Fifth Avenue, New York, <laughs> on New Year's Day in 1936. She socialized at the Maidstone Club, the first private sports club in East Hampton, Long Island. And she was one of the reigning beauties of the Hamptons. She was known around town as Body Beautiful Beale and had a steady following of bows. She even attracted some professionals and landed a few modeling gigs, much to the dismay of her father. Heidi the Body Clune, mm-hmm. right? She was the original The Body. I didn't know. Uh, <laughs> one of her photos. Now it's Megan the Stallion. Body, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. Uh, one of her photos was displayed in the studio window of famed photographer Louis Bacharach, and another was hung, apparently unauthorized, in the Macy's elevator in Manhattan. <laughs> and we also know that she did some clothes modeling in the Macy's store. And even though her foremost reputation was for her good looks, she also apparently had a promising future as a writer. She studied English literature in school, and there was an article written in the paper about the quote debutante who wants to be a writer do you think she ran into estee lauder oh i would think so yeah i hope so because so. estee lauder was always attracting oh, those people yeah. mm-hmm. or like walking around in their shadow till they gave her the time yep. of day yeah. <laughs> um and though edie never married it is believed that she had proposals from joe kennedy jr and j paul getty and she also dated howard hughes at some point but her one true love was a man named Julius Krug. So he was former Secretary of the Interior. But unfortunately, Big Edie scared off every suitor Little Edie ever had for fear that she would one day be left alone with no one to care for her. So she, like, actively sabotaged a lot of Little Edie's relationships. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. When you give, like, these socialite women nothing to do like it's almost like the past when they weren't allowed to get jobs like women were allowed to work and were allowed to vote at this time but because of their status they weren't quote-unquote allowed to do anything Mm -hmm. she's probably bored out of her fucking mind and so smart but has been given absolutely no direction to aim it you know yeah and that's like both of them were like that you know and so both of them were like okay i'll be a singer and it's like well (laughs) that takes training like and it's a lot of work and it takes a while and you can't just kind of like say it and have it happen no you know? and like they both did like you know really try at it but like i don't know if they really had that like it factor to like really make it as singers you know but also you know how like in a lot of fantasy novels and stories if somebody is magical and they don't use their magic or it's suppressed they explode yeah i feel like this is what it was like to Mm -hmm. be like a female socialite like i felt it with zelda fitzgerald too it's like you get so bottled up that you just explode and you become a a psycho person yeah Mm -hmm. exactly so in layman's terms this is definitely gonna cause some festering sure (laughs) Now, we do have to take some of these, quote, engagements with a grain of salt because Edie was known to spin stories. But there is truth to the fact that she was a hot commodity in her time. So I also don't want to say that, like, she didn't have guys proposing all the time. Uh I do. I genuinely believe that she did. Um, So from 1947 to 1952, Edie lived in an apartment and um, in the Barbizon Hotel for Women. So have you ever heard of this hotel? No. It has a fascinating history. 
It was one of the earliest. Add it to the list. Yes, I really <laughs> do want to. It was one of the earliest residential housing alternatives for young women moving to New York City to take advantage of professional opportunities. So it's kind of a safe place for young professional women to live. And this is where the famous, um, so you, you read The Bell Jar? Yes, of um, course. Yes. So you know, like the hotel that like Sylvia Plath stays in? Yes. They, they were all staying in the Barbizon. Okay. It's like home to so many really fucking cool stories and people and it had like all these weird rules but then it had this gorgeous like 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 rooftop kind of patio that they could all hang out on like and some I think a couple of the women still live there today because they had their rates locked in like they had like rent control like Rachel and Monica mm-hmm. oh yeah um so they're paying like you know like $35 a month for like <laughs> city. I think it was the This Is Love podcast did a fantastic episode on the Barbizon and its history. It Somebody is needs to write a hit so like a uh, cool. historical fiction mystery that Ooh, happens there. There has to be. Come on, authors. Come on, author. One. We've interviewed like a hundred yeah. of you. <laughs> Somebody. Look at you, Renee. Um, <laughs> she loves the Gilded Era. She'll do it. I don't even know if that is the Gilded Era. It's not. It's past that. Yeah, this is way past yeah, that. Yeah, way yeah. Past. Doesn't even. <laughs> matter you know we should do it when you're we should do a short episode on it the week you're away in february Ooh, i like that smart idea Allie. Yes, it is um so it was during this time where like her mother had done so many years before she tried to make it as a singer actress model but unfortunately her career never quite got off the ground and then her mother told her that she was out of money and couldn't afford to support her lifestyle in new york then she developed alopecia and all of her hair fell out. And then on July 29th, 1952, little Edie returned to live with her mother in the East Hampton Estate Gray Gardens. Why haven't we cured alopecia yet? I don't know. So at this point, she is about 35 years old. She is jobless, bald, and living with her mother. And neither of them have a fucking cent to their name. Whew. And whatever happened over the next 20 years would be kind of a mystery. But the two became very reclusive. And by the time people saw them again in 1971, they and the house were nearly unrecognizable. So in October of 1971, police raided Grey Gardens and found the house, quote, full of litter rife with the odor of cats and in violation of various local ordinances. And they said, you either have to fix up this house or move the fuck out because at this point it is a hazard. It was in such poor condition. Oh my God. Trash piled up in the corners, animals shitting and peeing everywhere. Like it was a hellhole. And apparently they had also, like, not been paying the water bill. So, like, there was no running water. So Jackie O and her sister, Lee Radziwill, decided to step in. And because, like, now it's, like, reflecting poorly on, like, them. That, like, they have cousins, like, living in squalor. So they raised $30,000 to make the house livable and return it to a standard, which would allow for, you know, the eviction order to be taken away. And... But, like, it's literally was, like, the bare minimum of being livable. Like, because, like, they did $30,000 worth of work. And when you look at the documentary that it's eventually going to be made, it's, like, it doesn't look like anything's been done. Like, it's crazy. 
it was like cleaned out (laughs) yeah like and like maybe that was just to get like running water and like heat back in the house i really don't know patch the holes in the roof and siding right um so shortly after all of this lee radswell hired documentary filmmaking brothers albert and david mazels to make a documentary about the bouvier family so they of course wanted to do a quick interview with Edie and Edith Beale and when they entered the house they were shocked to discover how the pair had been living and frankly the mental state that the two were in so the Bouvier family movie fell through but the brothers continued to be haunted by Grey Gardens because they're artists yes oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah so they were taking the idea around to people no one wanted to fund this movie so they just raised the money by themselves to like do this so they returned to gray gardens in 1974 to film a documentary that would finally ensure that both eds would achieve the fame they had desired for so long so the interesting thing about this documentary is that there is no plot there is no real story that it's telling the two Edies are simply existing together and the Maisel brothers are there just capturing it. They don't ask them how they got there or what they plan on doing to fix the situation. It's just them existing. You get a real feel for little Edie in one of the very first scenes. She is in the yard wearing one of her classic ensembles, this like turtleneck, pantyhose, a sweater over her head with a brooch, of course, and what looks like another sweater tied and pinned around her waist. And she says, this is the best thing to wear for today, you understand, because I don't like women in skirts, and the best thing is to wear pantyhose or some pants under a short skirt, I think. Then you have the pants under the skirt, and then you can pull the stockings up over the pants underneath the skirt and then you can always take off the skirt and use it as a cape so I think this is the best costume for today mother wanted me to come down in a kimono so we had quite a fight (laughs) that I just think that tells you everything you need to know about these women where it's like she's wearing something crazy that her and her mother got into a fight because she wanted her to wear a different crazy thing (laughs) This is what would actually happen on the Gilmore Girls. You know, it's funny. In an episode of Gilmore Girls in the cold open, they're watching Grey Gardens and commenting (laughs) on it. And they're like, I really feel for little Edie, you know. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, that could be us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they made a good Amy Sherman Palladino. Kudos. Mm -hmm. Kudos to you for that. I know. It's. It's really funny. So. The two women exist in basically one room of the house which i think i don't know if this is right but like i heard at some point it had like 28 bedrooms but now i'm not sure if that's true because the house doesn't look that big this house has 10 yeah and like but that's the thing i think your house might be like on the same size if not bigger so it also depends on like so bedrooms just have to like have a door and a window yeah so like they could be potentially a lot smaller rooms yeah yeah, I don't know if it's actually 28 bedrooms. That seems that's a that's a lot of bedrooms. <laughs> I don't think it's that many. So anyways, but they exist in basically one room, and this room contains two twin beds that the women sleep in, a re- small refrigerator, and lots of junk. Like I love Lucy style, two beds. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Hotel room. Exactly set up that way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the mattresses are bare. They have no sheets on them, so you can clearly see the years of stains on them. 
and the beds are always covered in cats and food and trash. The floor is also covered in debris, and they talk openly about the cats going to the bathroom on the floor, and to make it worse, like, one is clearly frequently going behind this huge, large oil painting of Edith when she was young. It's like this, like, really sad reminder of, like, they were high society, and now this giant oil portrait is sitting on the floor, and there's a cat taking a shit behind it. And you just know that no one's going to bother to clean it up. So it's just like behind the picture. But what are they doing all day? Up. What are they doing all day? <laughs> they're, they're, they're sunning on the porch. They're walking around. They're dancing, like <laughs> singing. Like it's. So the house is falling apart. Holes in the walls, in the ceiling with raccoons and cats coming in and out. And the flea problem was so <gasps> bad that the film crew had to wear flea collars around their wrists and ankles and necks to protect themselves. And even through this 70s hazy film, you can see the fleas and the flies swarming around the house. It's disgusting. Their diet seems to consist of canned liver pate, crackers, and ice cream. And in one scene, like, little Edie doesn't even have a spoon to eat the ice cream with, so she's eating it with, like, a pink plastic knife. Sometimes, same girl. <laughs> There's also a lot of, like, and everything happens, again, everything happens in their bedroom. So, like, at one point, Big Edie is laying in bed, and she puts a hot plate on her bed and is boiling water, making corn on the cob. Why not just go to the kitchen? I, I don't. Like, I know, like, she does have, definitely have, like, some mobility problems, but you can see her walking around. Like, she's not totally immobile, you know? Wonder Bread and cat food do make their way into the house, but both are just dumped on the floor to feed the cats and the raccoons communication between the two women is chaotic they are often singing at each other like a <laughs> scene where she goes put on my records and she's putting on the records and she goes tea for two and two for tea just also i wanted to put tea on the cot <laughs> um and then they're just like singing at each other and then big Edie is just hurling insults with a, a little Edie being like you're off key you're not singing very well you never sang very well she's really a dancer she's really a much better dancer than she is a singer <laughs> she can soft shoe she can soft she's a good dancer but she's a bad singer <laughs> and like while Edie's like singing it's so crazy and they're and like so like she's complimenting her and insulting her like all in the same breath this is blowing my mind they are talking over each other constantly and like mainly also like about the past and people they knew men who little Edie was supposed to marry but never did you know at some point she goes you know I almost married a count I could have been a countess or even the first lady if you know I hadn't moved back in here to live with my mother <laughs> Convinced that she was just a few weeks away from getting her big break in New York, throughout the film, she talks about how much she really resents being in this house with her mother. She hates the country. She is, says, I'd rather live in a rat hole in New York than in this house. She goes, it's too dark. It's too quiet, which, like, 
I feel that. Like, I've had those experiences living out in the country where I'm like, it's too dark, it's too quiet here. I don't like it. I like, can't sleep. Yeah. The, the, silence um, is, the silence is deafening. Horrible. So the, there is some other people that make appearances in the, in, in the film. Uh, there's a young man named Jerry who helps them out. They call him the Marble Fawn. And he acts as sort of like a maintenance man for the women. Um, he has got to be like, I don't know. I should have looked it up, but he looks like he's like 18. Like he's so young. Yeah. Um, and little Edie is convinced that he wants to have sex with her. Big Edie does not agree. Big Edie goes, he's out with another girl on the town every other night. He doesn't want you. You're too old. <laughs> little Edie's like, he wants it. I know he does. Like it's so great. <laughs> so, but Jerry does seem to be a kind soul in the film. He even eats the corn on the cob that Edith makes in her bed, which really, because like, and then they're just passing back and forth like a big stick of butter. <laughs> and he eats it. I was like, I. I, I don't couldn't. know how he's. I couldn't do it. No, I couldn't do it in your bed water. In your, your piss bed water? water in the I, and like you know that that pot has not been. Who's washing the pots? No one. It gets no hot one. enough. It gets hot enough to boil at Maybe least. Maybe Jerry. I mean, like, <laughs> I know I washed the pot, so I don't know. <laughs> but all grown up, Jerry actually does become a sculptor, and he has always spoken about his time with the Beals in a very nice and respectful way even referring to them as his friends. That's so nice. I mean, some people, people deserve respect even when they're bonkers. Yes. Um, Most people. So after the documentary released in 1976, the house and the Edies became quite famous. People were riveted by these two women and their riches to rags story. But some were a little concerned about the film. They wondered if the filmmakers were simply exploiting these two women who were clearly suffering and, like, clearly unwell. In 1976, Walter Goodman wrote in the New York Times that, quote, the film presents the Beals as a pair of grotesques and asked, why were they put on exhibition in this way? And in 2014, when Albert Mazels was asked specifically about the issue of exploitation, he answered, as someone with a background in psychology, I knew better than to claim the Beals were mentally ill. Their behavior was just their way of asserting themselves. And what could be a better way to assert themselves than a film about asserting themselves? <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. It's just them. They were always in control. And as much as the directors were supposed to be flies on the wall in the film, you do see them interacting with the women. And they were always kind. And the women ex- like expressed a gratefulness for their presence. I mean, right after the, I didn't talk about this, but there's a very famous scene where little Edie comes down the stairs and she's dancing with an American flag. I made you watch it. Yeah, it was before we started. Hysterical. It. I loved it. Um, and right after that, dance she is scene, a better dancer. Yeah. <laughs> a great, I haven't heard her sing, but she's a great dancer. You know, right after she's done, she goes, ah, David, darling, where have you been all my life? And she's like, I don't know what I've done. I don't know what I did without you. Like, I think she's I think they're both grateful that someone is fucking paying attention to them. Yeah. You know, and as far as money goes before filming, the Beals sat down with the directors and their family lawyer and they negotiated what they thought was fair before they started filming. They were paid for their cooperation and were due to participate in any profits. 
That's fair. The best you could have. That's very yeah. fair. Yeah. And I think it's important because clearly they were destitute and they did not have any money. So they did need some money from the film, which obviously raises other ethical questions about like how in control can they be when they are desperate for when money. When they're in need. Yes. Yeah. Um, but either way, people have been observing this movie for almost 50 years now and they find both empathy and exploitation which frankly exists in every documentary ever made that's what makes a compelling documentary yes and in total the Maisels ended up with 70 hours of footage and somehow pared it down to an hour and a half <laughs> the film is now considered a masterpiece of the documentary genre and regularly gets put on lists of the greatest documentaries of all time. And I think part of it is because there was no greater story they were telling. There was no, you know, interviews with them about like, so can you tell us what happened here? No, like, they just filmed they them. They just filmed them in their natural habitat state. <laughs> <laughs> Being themselves in yes. the gray house. Yes. Or what's it called? Gray gardens. Gray gardens. And in 2010, the film was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Big Edie died a year after the documentary was released on February 5th, 1977, from complications of pneumonia. She was 81 years old. As she neared her death, little Edie reportedly asked if she had any final thoughts. Edith replied, there's nothing more to say. It's all in the film. <laughs> not even 10 minutes into the film, little Edie declares that she's probably not going to get out of there until she dies or her mother dies. Well, that was true. <laughs> she did stay for about two years after, but only because it took that long to find the right buyer for the house. In accordance with her mother's wishes, and I think probably hers too, she refused to sell the house to someone who was going to tear it down. That was very important to her. And like she was actually kind of shocked that so many people were coming to the house and being like, yeah, so I'm going to demolish it and build this like huge beach bungalow. And she was like, what? Well, it is <laughs> in the Hamptons. Yes, exactly. Um, so finally, Ben Bradley, former executor of the Washington Post and his wife, the writer Sally Quinn, made that promise and bought Grey Gardens from Little Edie in 1979. Sally retells the story of her coming into Grey Gardens and her realtor was like, dear God, do not buy this house because it was such a wreck. I mean, I'm sure like, it just reeks of cat urine. Yeah. And like they said that they estimated about 300 cats had passed through the house at some point, like in those 20, like because she was like, when I got there, there was 28 <laughs> living in the house. Oh, 28 cats. buddy. And little Edie comes out and she's like welcome to gray gardens and she's like spinning around and she goes it's a great investment all it needs is a coat of paint <laughs> sign me up sign <laughs> me Allie's up, up for the test <laughs> <laughs> obviously that was not true and they knew it you know they're yeah. like obviously that's not what this needs but thankfully they were up for the challenge and the home was fully restored and over the next 35 years the gorgeous gardens were brought back to life. A swimming pool was added. The rooms were brought back to their original glory. And Sally even went as far as to restore much of the furniture that they had found in the house. 
The couple lived there happily until his death in 2014. And after that, it was just too sad for Sally to occupy alone. The house had been host to many charity events over the years, but in 2017, it was sold again to fashion designer Liz Lang, who apparently loves teal. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of teal in that house. Your eye roll was so strong. (laughs) But back when Edie first sold it, she got $220,000 for it, which is almost $890,000 today. And I think Liz Lang bought it for like $15 Because <laughs> it is like a near beachfront. It's like not quite beachfront, but it's like you can walk to the, like you can mm-hmm. see the ocean from little, right. the little gables. Um, you can see the ocean from like everywhere in Long Island. That's true. <laughs> so she also sold a lot of the heirlooms inside when she had first sold it because people were willing to pay for a piece of the historic Grey Gardens. And she used the money to finally live the life she wanted. She returned to New York City for a bit, um, taking two of her favorite cats with her, and she played an eight-show stint at a Manhattan cabaret club. Now, the reviews were pretty terrible, and many customers complained, but I think she had a good time. After that, she stayed briefly with friends in California and then moved to Ball Harbor, Florida in 1997. On January 14, 2002, a fan of Edie's called the police to do a wellness check because she had not been answering her phone. She was discovered dead inside and apparently had been there for about five days. The ruling was a heart attack or possibly a stroke. She was 84 years old. Little Edie reportedly said that she did not want to be buried near her mother, though it is believed that part of her ashes were spread at the Bouvier family plot and the other parts in the Atlantic Ocean. She was later memorialized with a grave marker beside her brother Buddy, at Locust Valley Cemetery in Long Island. Maybe Buddy was short for Bouvier. <laughs> that would make sense. No, Booth. It's got to be Booth. <laughs> the marker inscri- is inscribed with her quote, I came from God. I belong to God. In the end, I shall return to God. I like that that's one of her quotes. <laughs> Just a few years after her death, the Beals were memorialized yet again in a musical. In 2006, Grey Gardens the Musical debuted on Broadway to rave reviews. Then a few years after that, in 2009, HBO released a movie based on their life stories and, of course, the documentary. Drew Barrymore played Little Edie and (laughs) Jessica Lange played Big Edie. Of course they did. The film focuses on their lives before and during the documentary, so you really get a full picture of their lives and kind of what happened and a little bit more of like the really tough emotions that were involved in their choice to live at Grey Gardens together and like kind of how this all fucking happened. And the movie does have great reviews and people say that Drew Barrymore as Little Edie is fantastic. I haven't seen it yet, but but my personal favorite retelling of the Beale story comes from the show Documentary Now. So this is a show where Fred Armisen and Bill Hader recreate famous <laughs> documentaries. Of course. They called it Sandy Passage and Bill Hader plays Little Edie and Fred Armisen plays <laughs> Big Edie. These guys. And that was how I was actually introduced to the story of Great Garden. So I had watched that episode of Documentary Now. I had never heard of this documentary. I'd never heard of these women. <laughs> and I thought that they had like made this all up. And then I saw clips online. I was like, oh, they are taking this directly from the d- documentary like bill Hader's just in bed like <laughs> singing songs on a big floppy hat <laughs> drinking gin it's so fucking funny mm. um yes I, I would really highly recommend watching that 
Overall, the story of Grey Gardens survives because as dysfunctional as they were, they loved each other and they loved their house, their cats, and probably even their raccoons. Through the bickering and the boasting and perhaps storytelling of days gone by, you have to appreciate the dreams they both had and their dedication to dressing up and putting on a show even in the midst of their darker days. And I do believe little Edie when she said, I only mark the hours that shine. Oh, cute. And that's the story of wow. wow, wow, wow. <laughs> they were really putting something together, huh? Yes, yes, they were. <laughs> All right. Well, now we need to talk about these ladies in conversation with each other in a segment called Just, Just the Two of Us. So these stories really Benjamin buttoned each other, huh? <laughs> we have somebody going from like forced squalor mm-hmm. to like fighting for their freedom and liberty. At, and this other group just like born into all the privilege. Yeah. And ending up in in squalor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about that because it kind of felt like. The Beals are living in the past (laughs) like they are not thriving in their present, you know, because they just keep talking about, you know, what was going on back then and who they knew and what was like who they could have been married to. They always are living in the what if and they're just in this derelict house watching the world go on without them. Right. And Harriet is in a similar place at one point, watching her family and life go on without her. But she's not living in the past. She is surviving for the future, which I think are two totally different mindsets. Yeah. These, the stories go so far as to even overlap with one another. Yeah. Like Harriet died in 1898 and that's when Big Edie was born. Or like, no. Wait, no, she didn't die in 1898. She Harriet died in 1897. Harriet did? Yeah. Oh, wait, that makes sense. Yes. And Big Edie was born in 1895. So they overlapped by two years. Yeah. God, that's wild. That, like, and I I think it just, it emphasizes the the huge difference, I think, between the 18th and 19th century in general, and then the huge difference between, like, class and racial and geographic differences between these women and talk about like feeling like something is entitled to you like i feel like the eds just like were like yeah it'll work out like and they were just like ready to just like live in squalor before like really taking charge and like fixing the situation like finding some sort of real solution you know what i'm saying and like harriet was like i gotta get myself out of this like harriet was all solutions she was like she had a plan, it seemed, for, like, every step of the way, you know? Like, I she's mean, like, I'm going to have kids with this guy, so I'm protected a little bit. I'm going to run away and live in this house for seven. Like, there's so much more, like, thoughtfulness going on in, like, Harriet's mind than the Beals. You they know? could have lived in absolute squalor and still cleaned up the place. Right. Like, or they could have sold Grey Gardens. And lived and somewhere lived smaller. Somewhere smaller, you know? And I also thought a lot in, a lot about, like, the hardships of, like, being a mother and how, you know, a lot of people have a lot of sympathy for little Edie because she is obviously trapped in this situation. You know, she feels this debt owed to her mother or some sort of weird kinship with her. And even though, like, Edith does, like, clearly sabotage Edie's chance to, like, move on and get married. Like, I do think there is a lot of truth to that. 
and you see Harriet giving so much of herself to make a better life for her children and they are just two opposite ideas of like what motherhood is you know but even Harriet and Louisa spent a lot of time together yeah Mm -hmm. um and you know Harriet didn't get married Mm -hmm. I don't know if Louisa did just because of their like status in America at the time but like they spent a lot of time living together and moving around the country together because mm-hmm. I guess that's what you had to do if you weren't paired with a man was yeah. stay with another single woman. But the big difference was that Big Edie stripped her daughter of education mm-hmm. versus like Harriet was gifted an education yeah. by one of the um, tavern owner women. And then her she made sure her children were educated, yep. you know, like so that they could exist in this world successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I was thinking a lot about the idea that they're both at some point in the story, like trapped in houses. Mm-hmm. And like that must be so claustrophobic at some point, even though obviously like Harriet is in a tiny crawl space and they're in a derelict mansion. <laughs> but they won't leave the bedroom. Exactly. Yeah. They are confined to a very small portion of the house, no matter how big it is, you know, and just like that feeling of like, oh, my gosh, like I'm never going to fucking get out of here. Like that must be suffocating. I don't know. It's, and also like. The whole time I was watching Great Gardens, I did keep kind of thinking, I was like, doesn't she have two sons? Like, why isn't anyone stepping in? Like they do, like maybe they were just sick of the two women and they were like, maybe like everybody cut them off. I mean, like we have a family member who like everybody's cut them off. Like there is no, nothing more. Like, so maybe they said like, we're not going to give you anything unless you decide to sell Grey Gardens. Cause like, they're like, this is a monetary sinkhole. Like we, we can't keep this up. It's too much, you know? And like at some point they have like one guy doing all the gardens and he's just like mowing a little path that they can walk through but it's right. like a jungle you know and I don't know and I was thinking a lot about how like they pushed all their family away it seems and Harriet's family was taken away without her consent like mm. scattered everywhere you know and like again just like the differences between their stories and yet they're kind of in similar situations they are in a weird way the difference between the lavish life that they were born into and mm-hmm. Harriet being born into you know an enslaved position in Mm -hmm. america i mean the difference a hundred years makes you know it's just an it's hundred years and a lot of different you know intersectionalities but it's it's a really wild journey through american history that we just took yes yeah a lot of famous names faces people (laughs) like i felt really overwhelmed by both of those stories yeah well also like their stories got told in very unique ways, you know, mm. a documentary versus an autobiography. And I think that when both came out, people were like, this can't be real. Right. Like, this, this is fiction. This is fake. can't be real that they're living like this, that, like, this happened to Harriet. Like, you know, there's an element of, like, I, I just can't believe it. And it wasn't until later that people really started to accept it and yeah. be like, okay, like, all right, this is what happened. And it's on paper. It's on film. Like, yeah. Well, and it both, let's treasure it. Both of the, both of their stories opened up conversations about people being exploited too. You oh know? yeah, oh Which yeah, is very interesting. Um, because frankly, like in Great Gardens, like someone else is telling their story, and right. with Harriet, at least she is telling her story, which does feel a little better. Right. But, mm. I don't know. 
Very interesting. <laughs> what, a <laughs> what a comparison. What a differences. <laughs> really is. All right. Well, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast everyone who's ever had to write something down that's really hard. Yeah. I think it, whether it's in a letter or, you know, a text message or even a Facebook status, I think, you know, there's a lot of energy that goes into thinking of what you want to say and how you want to say it. So okay. cheers, cheers to that. Cheers. I'm going to toast women that keep a light spirit in very dark situations. I I kept being kind of inspired by like Edie, little Edie just being like, I'm going to sing and I'm going to dance and I'm going to have a good time. And like at some point she's reading an astrology book on the porch and she goes, a Libra man. And she's like, I got to find myself one of those, a Libra man. <laughs> and she's like reading all the, <laughs> I don't know. So it it would be tough to be have a light spirit in that situation if she did it. Honestly. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I'm actually going to promote something that I didn't use as source material because I found it too late. But it's an absolutely fascinating website by Lampam's Quarterly. And um, the website's called Incidents in the Life of Harriet Jacobs. And it takes you through her story step by step and has little you can scroll down it has little dots on the map and then the primary source that proves she was there mm. as you go along it was such a great website i was like i can't i found it today like oh. after all my research was done my god it's a beautiful website and i'm so thankful it exists because i think this is the type of person that as you go into Black History Month this month, like mm -hmm. these are the type of people we need to be teaching children about now. Yeah. Like, yes, absolutely. MLK, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, they're amazing people. But like at this point, most people know their stories. Black yes. history is so much bigger yes. than the civil rights movement. Yes. Like, I totally agree. and this mm -hmm. is like an, a great website for people to read. Yeah. I love that. Um, it's funny because I'm going to promote my main source material, the Grey Gardens documentary. I really think that everybody should watch it. I it can't wait. Riveting. I can't because, wait. And like, and nothing's happening. You're like, <laughs> nothing's happening. And I can't take my eyes off the screen. Like, it's so good. And then, of course, the documentary now spoof of it because both are so, so good. <laughs> I'm coming out of dry January and just hitting this documentary so hard because producer's going to be gone this week. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Yeah, And I think it's on, you can find it on YouTube. I watched it on YouTube and then Hell it's yeah. also on Max and I think Amazon Prime. So like it's available. Um, but yeah, so good. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of season 17. Almost legal. Yay. And if you're liking what we're doing you can join us on patreon for as little as a dollar a month you can hang out with us hear more of our personal lives and support our cocktail budget <laughs> um and if you can't do that you can at least rate and review us on apple Podcasts. that would be so wonderful of you to do um but if you can't do either of those things that's fine we still love you and we will see you next week and we want you to never forget in between that well-behaved woman <laughs> Really love being in open, wide spaces. Yeah. Don't confine themselves. Yes, please don't. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.